the church. For you, it might be a place where you felt judged or a place where you felt set free or renewed. Maybe you felt oppressed. Maybe you have felt like it was a second home or even your only home. For me, it was a place I felt free as a kid to climb under the pews and crawl everywhere in the old sanctuary. It was where I learned to worship through song. It's where I learned to play the guitar because I desperately wanted to be on the youth praise team with my older brother. It's where I made lifelong friendships and was mentored by amazing Sunday school teachers and youth leaders and pastors. It's a place I felt honored to be called back to after I graduated college. This church in particular has truly been an extended family to me and my family. For those of you that don't know, my name's John Girton. I'm the creative arts pastor here, and my parents, Richard and Pamela Girton, were the founding pastors of this church in January of 1984. I was born in October of 1984. So I literally grew up in this church and in the parsonage, or what we call the annex, across the driveway. And I have very fond memories. I grew up here until I was 17. And I consider myself fortunate to be a PK, or a pastor's kid. Not a lot of people can say that. I was raised in an environment that empowered me and helped me grow in my faith. I still consider myself fortunate to this day to serve here at FBC. And what's amazing now is to watch my kids refer to this as their church. And I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. If I have to work on the weekends or sometimes bring the kids here with me, we'll play a game that they love called Chase the Lights. So check out this video real quick. You'll get an idea of what it is. Oh, it's upside down. We'll fix that later. There should be sound too, Mike. So if you want to go like this. Anyways, I'll fix that for second service. You get the idea, I turn on this motion light and they'll run around the sanctuary and they'll chase the light while we play VBS songs and it looks like the lights are going off. This is fun, huh? Did I mention I'm also in charge of all the tech here at the church? <laughs> but it is pretty fun to watch them do that and sometimes they'll get Nick's little scooters that he has for the youth group and they'll ride them in the halls and up and down the aisles and I keep my eye on them, you know, but I just want them to have the same memories and feelings towards the church that I had growing up. But again, I know that not everyone here has those feelings. Not everybody here has that experience. So this morning, we're going to take a look at what the church is supposed to be according to Scripture. Regardless of your history with, your church, with the church or your preconceived notions of the church, I understand that for some of you, this could be your very first time joining us online or in person. It could be your first time ever experiencing church. So what is it all about? What is church? Well, most of you who have attended church long enough have heard this passage coming out of Acts 2. This is referring to the early church, the first church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They even sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the ideal that we look at, that we try to emulate in many ways as the church. I mean, this first church had it all. They had teaching, they had fellowship, they had communion, prayer, miracles, unity, charity. They met daily. They had small groups in their homes. They were praising God. Not only that, they were praising God with sincerity. It wasn't just a show for them. And it says, as a result of all this, their numbers grew daily. Saw this in an article by Focus on the Family. He put it into good words here. The early Christian church had no buildings at least not in the sense of what we would consider church buildings today. First century Christians were often persecuted and, as a result, often met in secret, usually in homes. As the influence of Christianity spread, eventually buildings dedicated to worship were established and became what we know today as churches. In this sense, then, the church consists, excuse me, of people, not buildings. Fellowship, worship, and ministry are all conducted by people, not buildings. Church structures facilitate the role of God's people, but they do not fulfill it. Now, I think if we're honest, even when I said the word church, what popped in your mind was probably a building. It might have been this building. It might have been the church you grew up in. It might be the building down the street or the building at the center of town that everyone looks at and thinks is beautiful, right? It's just something that's kind of ingrained in our head, but the word church actually is derived from the word ecclesia, which means called out assembly. If you break it down, ek means out from and to, and kaleo means to call, summon, or invite. So listen to this. We, the church, are literally an assembly who is called and invited out from and to God's purpose. It is literally us being called out by God. God looking at you and saying, you are my people. You are my church. We're being called out of our comfort, out of a building, out of that, and called to live for God. So the church in my definition is simple. Imperfect people pursuing a perfect savior. Because when we look even at the early church, what happens after Acts is just exploding and everything's amazing there, they start to bicker. They start to talk about who they follow. They start to talk about their doctrines, their their preferences. And Chris talked about this idea last week. They started to lose their togetherness. They lost their unity. So they were imperfect after all. But our imperfections don't define the church. Christ's perfection defines the church. C.S. Lewis, he puts it this way. In spite of all the unfortunate differences between Christians, what they agree on is still something pretty big and pretty solid. Big enough to blow any of us sky high if it happens to be true. And if it's true... It's quite ridiculous to put off doing anything about it simply because Christians don't fully agree among themselves. I love C.S. Lewis. He just has a way of putting things, doesn't he? This one thing that he's talking about, 
that we, the church, are called to believe in is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that truth, we find a history-changing, world-bending, life-altering reality for the church. But we spend so much time bickering about our preferences that we lose sight of that. See, Christ saw the power in his church when he ascended into heaven. He left us the spirit of God. He gave us a gift because he wanted his, his church, his bride to succeed. He yearns, he longs for us as the church. He wants to see us succeed on his behalf. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ longs for his church. He longs for us to succeed, to follow through on the mission he has presented to us. So this morning, let's take a look at three things that Christ did for the church, and then we'll talk a little bit about who we are as the church. First of all, Christ died for the church. He died for the church. We just read that in the passage above in Ephesians where it says he gave himself up for her. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Christ didn't die for this building. Christ didn't die for the building down the street. He didn't die for the building that you have pictured in your mind. He died for you and he died for me. He died for Jew and Gentile, Greek and slave, all nations, tribes, and tongues, that coworker and that neighbor you can't stand. He died for them too. He died so that all could know the joy of salvation. He died for his church. Number two, Christ fights for the church. He didn't just die and then stop. He continues to fight. For the church, Matthew 16, 18 says, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, what's interesting about this passage, I just have to say this because I find it geekily interesting. Geekily? Uh, Peter translated as Petros. Rock translated is Petro. So when Jesus gave Simon a new name and said, your, your name is Peter, he gave him the name Rock. And then later on, he says, I'm gonna build my church on a rock. He's drawing this correlation. He's saying there's a foundation that this church is going to be built on. Not only that, in Romans 8, we learn this. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Number one, Christ died for the church. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we, the church, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Do we believe that, church? The writer says, I am convinced. Are we convinced of that? That's, that's who we are as the church, that Christ is fighting for us. He's on our behalf. Christ is fighting for us. We should have confidence in that. I recently had a conversation. We had a really good devotional time with our, our board at our board meeting a couple weeks ago. And Dennis brought up some things in Acts and it brought up this thought of confidence to me. I've always struggled with confidence, uh, especially in like my walk with God is like, I'll never amount to what I'm supposed to be with God or I'm, I'm stuck in this sin or whatever it is. I don't have the confidence to break free. But as we started talking, it dawned on me again that in Hebrews, we're told that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because we belong to God. We sang songs this morning saying that we have authority, we have confidence. We as the church should have assurance in whom we follow. We should walk in that confidence and assurance knowing that he is for us. He's not against us. And yet so often we hide within our church walls because we're too scared to step out in that assurance, that confidence that Christ is saying, I gave you. So number three, Christ is the head of the church. He died for the church, he fights for the church, and he's the head of the church. This is vastly important because he is in charge. He is in control of the church. Colossians 1.18 in the Christian Standard Bible says, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. First place is translated as protos, which literally means first, before, principle, most important. So Christ is supposed to be the most important thing to the church. Christ is the head of it all. So before you ask yourself what an author, a pastor, a friend, a political candidate, a spouse, a counselor thinks, stop yourself and ask the question, what does Christ say? Christ is the head of the church. Today's church has an issue with this. Because what's happened is pastors have become rock stars. Pastors have become uh, social media stars. And people start to put their faith in an image of who they think Christ is, but it's really a pastor. And we've seen this a lot in the last couple of years, where a prominent pastor who's the face of this church falters, fails. What happens? A church crumbles. People leave the faith. They say, if, if, if he acts like that, then that's not the Jesus I serve. The issue is Christ is not the head of that church. That pastor has become the head and people are putting their faith in a man. They're not putting their faith in Christ. And I urge you, 
if there are things that I say, that Chris says, that you think, huh, how does that line up with what Christ says? Ask us. We want to have those conversations. Chris is the boss, but he's not the head of this church. I was raised in this church. I'm not the head of this church. Pastor Gerton and Pam founded this church. They're not the head of this church. Christ is. In 1 Corinthians, Paul actually gets after the church of Corinth because they are fighting about this idea. They're saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow blah, blah, blah. And Paul's like, whoa, you don't follow any of them. You follow Christ crucified. He, he then goes to explain their roles. Paul, Apollos, me, Chris. He says, we're here to plant and water a seed, but only God can make it grow. We're here to shepherd, to pastor, but only God can do that work. So if God loves the church so much that he sent his son to die, and we know that he fights for us, and we know that he's supreme, he's the head of the church, then what are we called to do as the body, as the church? Well, I'm going to tell you two things we're not supposed to do, and then I'll get into the things we're supposed to do. Number one, the church is not meant to conform. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a command. Don't conform. But this is where a lot of people get tripped up. People want to attend church and keep living the way the world lives and claim that. Yeah, I go to church. I'm a good person. But Christ says, no, I'm calling you to something new, a new life, a 2 Corinthians 5.17 life where you're leaving the old life behind and you're pursuing a new life with, with me as the head. See, if we just attend church, we don't have to be challenged to be the church. It's easier. I can just lay back and be comfortable in my seat, sing a couple songs, hear a guy talk at me, and then go home and do whatever I want. I can get fat off Christ. That's great. But that's not what God wants. The other thing is, if you do that, then great. I don't have to face any persecution. I don't have to be in the crosshairs of culture. If anybody calls me out, I can just be like, oh, well, I just attend church. I don't really believe that stuff. I don't really find my identity in Christ. See, God wants us to be transformed, to be made new, to be something different. In fact, it gets pretty intense in John 15. Starting in verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you, the church, do not belong to the world because we're ecclesia. We've been called out of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. That's a guarantee. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I hadn't come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But 
Now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I hadn't done among them the works no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. This is also to fill this, this law that's written that says they hated me without reason. See, we are called to be set apart, to not conform, to be transformed, to be in the world, not of the world. And we will be persecuted. We will be treated differently. We will be hated as a result of this. But through us, God can and will change the world. That's his hope for his church. We see this in our culture on a daily basis. The church is under attack. The church has been under attack. This is nothing new. What we're experiencing in the United States is just a fraction of what some of those in the rest of the world are facing. We're just becoming more aware of it in America. We are persecuted. The question is, are we reflecting God's glory in those moments of attack? Are we the church representing Christ when we're being persecuted? We're called to be different. We're not called to give in to the attacks and be like the world, to reflect that attack and attack back. We're called to be like Jesus. Are we doing that? So we're not supposed to conform. The second thing, the church is not meant to be judge, jury, and executioner. Unfortunately, the church has a long history of passing out judgment. Even though time and time again in scripture, it's very clear, it says, don't judge. In fact, in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, it literally starts with these three words. Do not judge. Simple. Straightforward. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me get that sin, that speck, that thing that you do out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Real quick sidebar, when we were building this church, they, uh, the church body actually did a lot of the roofing. And since I lived over there, my dad was like, hey, come on the roof. And I was like, yeah. So I was on the roof one time. It was pretty windy. It was actually snowing, I believe. And I had a piece of wood right in my eye. And it scratched my eye when I was up there, which is terrifying when you're on a roof and then you have to climb down a ladder. But the sheer pain of that in my eye as a kid was awful. All I remember is that my parents bought me Taco Bell, a kid's meal, as a result because they felt bad which was awesome because we never went out to eat. But just thinking about that, it was a tiny little speck that got in my eye and it hurt, it devastated. Think about that. When you're, when you're thinking about that thing that you want to pull out of somebody else's eye, this giant thing in your own is causing you pain. It's causing damage to you. But the thing is, is we don't want to admit to our failings. So it's easier to pass judgment on others. Even though we've got this excruciating pain of sin in our own life, we're like, yeah, but his sin is worse than my sin. So I'm good, right? But as we read here, when we do that, we end up judging ourselves. Romans 2 continues with this idea. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, 
For whatever point you judge others, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, when we judge, we forget about God's forgiveness. God is judging through the lens of forgiveness and repentance and salvation. God is the head of the church. He is the one and only judge. We are meant to be a people who are called to live this law out that Jesus gave us to love God and to love others. He didn't say, and in the midst of that, judge, because that's not our role. So those are the two things the church is not meant to be. Let's go through quickly some things the church is meant to be. The church is meant for encouragement. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have what? Confidence, because we are the church, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, the head of the church, that's Christ, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with what? Full assurance, confidence that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And then with all these things, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. If we know this to be true, how do we do that as a body? How do we do that as the church? We encourage one another. We don't give up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So as you see people in the church that maybe haven't been in here in a while, rather than saying, where have you been? You going somewhere else? What's going on? Maybe encourage them. Man, I've missed you. I can't wait to see you in church again. I can't wait to have you back in this place. I'd, I'd love to see you. Encourage them to meet together. Encourage them to grow stronger in the faith. If we were a church of encouragers, instead of a people who have a tendency to judge and tear down, imagine how this world could be changed. If we're encouraging one another here in this place, if we're encouraging that cashier as we check out, if we're encouraging everybody we come in contact with, my wife is an encourager. I don't know how she does it. She'll go get gas and go in the station and come back out with a smile on her face. And I'll say, did you make a new friend? Because she does it all the time. And she's like, yeah, his mom was struggling with some stuff. So we talked about it and like knows his life story. And I'm just like, okay, I didn't look the cashier in the eye the last time I was in there. It makes me uncomfortable, you know? So we can be encouragers. It makes a difference because not only does it encourage them, but it encourages us in, in return. So number one, encouragement. Number two is accountability. This one's tough because we just talked about not judging. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 18 says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, the church, to warn those who are idle and disruptive. And in the midst of that, encourage them. See, I think that that's important because you can judge people by being accountable and not encourage them and you're just judging them. If you're holding them to a standard and encouraging them as you're doing that, 
encouraging the disheartened, you're helping the weak, you're being patient with everyone. It says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And then rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And we can do that as a body when we're holding each other accountable. We aren't called to judge, but we are called to help each other, to help each other through the growing pains, to help the body move together towards Jesus and not away from him. Number three, it meets the need for belonging. This is actually in our membership class. If you take that, you'll see that in there. But in Ephesians, it says this, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens. You've got new citizenship with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation, that patro of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. So he's the head of the church, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We have a new citizenship when we come together as the church. And in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, and this is a passage I love, says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, my favorite words, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were wandering in this world and you had no identity, and then you came to know Jesus and he gave you a new identity. He gave you a new name written in glory. The last thing is, is the church is meant to proclaim the gospel. So if we can encourage one another, keep each other accountable, help each other belong, it says in that passage that we just read, the reason that we do these things, that we have this new identity, is so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. If we understand what darkness was and we have light with God now, then we should be telling everyone we come in contact with about that. That's why when Jesus left this earth, he sent this message to his disciples. As he left, he said this in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now do something with it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. I think something that's important in here is it says, go and make disciples of all nations nations. It doesn't say go and make disciples of the people who look like you, who act like you, who live in the same neighborhood as you, who you are most comfortable with. It says all nations, all people, everybody. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 has this idea too. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And a lot of people who might have had a good taste of the church, walked away because that saltiness lost its flavor. They lost their, their focus on who the church was, what it's about. But it continues, it says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're called to be up on a stand where people can see us, not so that they can look at you and say, oh, they go to Family Bible Church. That's a good church. They're good people. But for them to say, I see the glory of Christ reflecting off of them. The light in the darkness is reflecting off of this body, these people. And then in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to do the same. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. What does that mean? Well, if anybody has material possessions and they see a brother or sister in need, do something about it. If they have no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not just love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. If I could add to that, Dear children, don't just come listen to a sermon on Sunday and attend a service. Go be active and be the truth of God in this world. Be the church. Putting that all together, all of these things that we just talked about, it's telling us that we are called to be an active, not a passive church. All of these things are things we are called to do as the church. And I've seen examples of this in the church in the last number of weeks. Last week, I saw some members come together to pray over some people out in the lawn as we had our outdoor service. And it was just this sweet moment where they knew this person needed prayer and they came around and prayed for them. A couple weeks ago, I witnessed women praying together in the youth room as I was walking down on that end. They just gathered in there and they prayed. I overheard people openly talking about their faith in a coffee shop in Battle Creek as I was preparing for this sermon. I saw those who served in many areas at this church who went unnoticed. There was people who were in here replacing light bulbs. There were people who were folding clothes for Lighthouse. There were people who were here for the Lighthouse, handing out food and clothing to those in need. I see it in Rocky and Chelsea Ray as they have gone over to Uganda and they have sacrificed so much to be over there. But I also see it in those people who are supporting them and loving on them and wanting them to know that we love you. And if you guys are watching, I think we're over here. If you're watching, we love you, Rocky and Chelsea. We are here for you. I see it in Joan Chapman in her mustard seeds ministry as she meets the needs of young women in Africa. Not only that, she heard a call from the Lord to go to Uganda and she's going again. She's raising funds. She's being called out. She's being ecclesia. She's being part of the assembly, called out to do the work of God. I see it in Stephen Ministries where we're starting this ministry of how can we care for people? We need to know how to do this. So how do we dig deeper so that we can care for, for other people with the love of Christ? Our vision at FBC is as follows. To be a community, an ecclesia, who's called out, who's actively, not passively, engaging God and others, whether here, gathered, or scattered beyond these walls. We could have just said, to be a community who actively engages God and others, and stopped there. But it's important to note that it's beyond just this time. It's our daily lives. That's who we hope to be as a church our mission here is developing followers of Jesus who serve to reach one more. Chris is going to be breaking this down over the next couple of weeks to develop, serve, and reach. We need to develop our hearts to, to, to understand how to serve one another, how to reach one another. And notice it says reach one more. Sometimes we just get overwhelmed with this idea of, well, I have to reach everybody that I come in contact with. 
What if you took a step back and you said, I want to reach one person that I know that doesn't know Jesus, and I just want to show them the love of Jesus. And it's not just going up to them and being like, hey, did you know you're a sinner and you're going to hell? That's scary, right? It's coming alongside them, living life with them, and showing them the reflection of Jesus. See, the church is not just an inward focus. It's so much more than that. But it's so easy to make church life a bubble, a place that we attend, a building. But it's a people working together as one body, even in our imperfections, even in our disagreements, to pursue the Savior and spread that message to the ends of the earth. The church should be at the forefront of creativity because we serve the Creator. The church should be the first to extend grace because we were given grace. The church should be the first to love because God is love. The church should be the first to forgive because we were forgiven by his death on the cross. The church should be the first to extend peace because we serve the peacemaker. The church should be filled with the Spirit because we were given the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. The church should be taking care of the widows and the orphans. The church should be a light in the darkness. Church, it's time to wake up. It is time to be the church. The world needs us. Your family needs us. God is longing for us to step up and finally be who he's called us to be. We are the church. We are a holy possession of God. We are special. We are set apart. Take that. Own it. Be confident in it. Be assured in that. See, you're royal. You're sons and daughters of the most high king of kings. But are we living that calling out? Are we the body of Christ? Or are we a people who just want to be safe in this building and feel comfortable? Let's pray. Father, you called us out. You called me out as I prepared this sermon this week. You have called us not to conform. You've called us not to judge, but you, you've called us to encourage, to be accountable, to help others belong, to proclaim your gospel. God, to be a light in the darkness. God, help us to encourage one another within this church body to be confident, to have that assurance of faith in you and to be the church, not just to be a passive group of people that gather, but to be an active church called out to go do your work. Help us to do that with your spirits prompting and faith surrounding us. Maybe there's someone here this morning that is attending church or has just been going through the motions but has never said yes to Jesus and doesn't have their identity, doesn't feel like... Uh, I'm a special possession. I'm a royal priesthood. I, I don't think I've ever made that decision. I just want to encourage you in this moment to speak to, to God. To first and foremost say thank you. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me so that I can have the opportunity to have a new identity, a new life, 
God, I want to live for you. So I give this imperfect life to a perfect Savior. And I commit in this moment to pursue you with all that I am. Even when I mess up, to not give up, to not say that you've given up on me, but to know that you forgive. To approach that throne room with confidence because I've been given grace. If you're someone that did that this morning, I just encourage you to in this moment to boldly just raise your hand and and let us know because we want to come alongside you. And if you're someone who's not feeling like you can raise your hand in this moment, just to, to let us know, grab one of the pastors and just say, hey, I'm a part of the family. We want to celebrate with you. So God, as we close this morning, we just ask that your words would stick to us. That anything that I said that doesn't align with your word would fall to the side. But God, those things that you want to challenge us with, that you want us to be active with, would stick and that we'd follow through. Help us, God, to be the church. We love you and praise you. Amen. 